Hola y welcome to Femas Faith. I'm Erika Reynoso, a church kid and pastor's kid raised in La Iglesia Pentecostal. I'm hoping to share encouragement and compassion to struggling church kids like myself. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So we all know that the Latino experience in America is not a monolith. Just because we share a cultural background does not mean it applies to every other Latino in America. Our families all have different stories of migration that brought us to this moment. Being raised as a Latina in the South certainly had its peculiarities that may not be applicable to people who grew up in urban areas of the U.S. And then you get even more peculiarities when you look at your faith background and experience. I was raised in a Pentecostal church, which informed how I perceived and engaged with the world outside of church. But but back to being raised in the South. I shared in episode three some questions that have allowed me to understand the nuances of my experience as a Christian Latina, taking into account my parents' story of coming to the U.S. and how that shaped me. I was raised in a part of Charlotte that, to this day, is diverse. However, I was in a magnet program, which is where all the white families put their kids in. So most of my classes were filled with white kids. There were a handful of friends I had that were from different cultures, but I can't say that I had classes where most of my classmates were Latino. I've heard of people who grew up surrounded with cultural representation all over them, and I get low-key jealous. I faced so many identity insecurities and questioning because I was mostly surrounded by white people. And as I grew, I'd compare my beauty, my image, my value to the white kids in my classrooms. I began to internalize the messages of white supremacy that to be good was to be white. I didn't have enough confidence in my own cultural identity to value it and be proud of it. Mm, But in parentheses, okay, there was a window of time in seventh grade where I was borderline nationalist after a trip to El Salvador, but that didn't last long, okay? Just gonna clear that out. (laughs) Um, But I I sought validation in my identity in, in different ways. When I was placed in a class with kids who looked like me, I sought friendship with them. When I was at church with kids who were from where my parents were from, I felt my chest fill up with joy. When I traveled to El Salvador, I held on to the excitement of of learning about my culture. However, when I'd walk into class after class and see the white kids in my classes hold some social stance that I didn't have, I longed to be like them. I'd get the fake Birkenstocks and I splurged on one single Hollister shirt that I would wear until the threads fell apart. I was so confused in my own cultural identity, and, and that is what has led me to be particularly sensitive to understanding the complexities of being bicultural. Well, by the time I, I graduated high school and moved on to college, I, I, had grasped on, I had grasped on tighter to my cultural identity and began to stop these, those behaviors of, of assimilating. 
You know, something about being a first-generation college student, going to a prestigious college, just fills you up with joy and excitement to be an orgullo hispano. <laughs> so I went to college with the desire to, to stay connected to my cultural identity and, and find a home where I could connect with others like me. That was particularly challenging because I went to a predominantly white institution where I think only 5% of the student body was Latino when I went there. So on the day of the fair where all the student organizations put out their tables to recruit new members, I walked around looking for some form of connection to my cultural identity. I found the Latin American student org and, you know, tried it out for a bit, but I still wanted connection to my culture, but really through the college ministry I, I joined. And I remember setting up a meeting with the college chaplain to ask him about any ministries that <laughs> serve the Latinos. And he told me, no, there weren't any ministries specifically for Latino students, but he did nudge me to one campus ministry that was the most diverse on campus. So I connected with that campus ministry and spoke to the campus minister about beginning a Bible study for Latino students. And after some time, I launched Latinos of Faith at a PWI in order to satisfy my longing to stay connected to both my culture and my faith. I remember making the Facebook event to our first meeting and I and, and you know sending Facebook invites to everyone on my friends and like ten people were yeses, twenty were interested, and a hundred were no response. <laughs> I was very much like Michael Scott when he started his own paper company and invited people to the pancake breakfast. If you know, you know. But leading up to the launch of Latinos of Faith, I was so excited by the thought that I would connect with others in a way that was important to me. And over the years that I led this group. You know, the most I ever had in a meeting was like seven. And I do cherish many moments I had during the existence of Latinos of Faith with friends I made and, and memories that I'll remember forever. But I want to get to one part of this journey that was pivotal. The campus ministry I was a part of held a global conference, and I attended it back in 2012. I was most interested in connecting with the Latino ministries and gaining insight to strengthen my own Bible study. I remember sitting in a room filled with Latinos that were Christian, that were in the same ministry as I am, and, and I could not contain myself. You know, these were students from all over the country that took part in the Latino, you know, part of, of this campus ministry. And I emailed the lead minister for campuses in California and asked to sit and talk with him. I met with him and began sharing the story behind Latinos of Faith and how I wanted to grow. This was also the first time I ever opened up to a minister about spiritual struggles I was having. I told him how overwhelmed I was, how much fear and doubt I was experiencing. I shed tears sharing how far I felt from God. And I still remember the orange and red carpet of that conference room where I met him. I still remember the soft cushion I sat on, on the gray chair. You know, my hands grasped the bottom of the chair as I did something I'd never done before, open up about my spiritual battles. I remember these details because what happened next changed the way I perceived the influence of whiteness over the Latino community, especially in our faith. 
The minister sat back, and I saw the concern in his eyes. He put his hand to his chin and asked me, well, how's your quiet time and journaling going? I felt confused. I had only ever seen the white kids growing up and the white people in my campus ministry talk about their quiet time. I grew up Pentecostal, where quiet time wasn't a thing. In fact, what was quiet time for white Christians was a very, very loud time for Latino Pentecostals. Shoot, the louder we prayed, the more power we felt from God. So when this minister asked me how my quiet time was going, I had nothing to reply. And that's exactly what I said. My eyes got wider and I gulped as I said, I don't do quiet time. The minister sat up, placed his hands on his lap, and he lifted his heels of his feet against the chair legs. He told me, well, that's why you're struggling. You don't have quiet time. How are you going to connect with God? How are you talking to God if you're not journaling? And I, I began tracing the edges of the flowers on the orange and red carpet with my eyes as I felt the air of that conference room become crisp and cold. My eyes traced every curve, every point of the Victorian flowers on that carpet. I traced the squares around the groups of flowers as I just heard the voice of that minister muffle away in the distance. I felt shame before, but never before like this. I'd been told I need to pray more. I'd been told before that I needed to, you know, behave well in church. I'd, I'd heard before that I need to try harder to get closer to God, but this moment was different. The years of feeling my cultural identity challenged were all of a sudden challenged, challenged even in the context of my faith. The measures of strong faith in the white evangelical world became the measure of for my own faith as I sat there as a Latina college student doing everything I could to build a community of acceptance and love back home. I was being measured against the practices that I'd only seen white Christians practice by this Latino minister who had adopted for himself those practices. You know, I, I don't criticize him for valuing quiet time and journaling. I challenge him for not being aware of his cultural incompetency when measuring my spiritual standing by something that was not a generalized practice across many, if not most, Latino congregations. Though I experienced shame in that moment, I had about a 12-hour drive home where I, I processed that interaction. On one level, I felt disconnected by my own people when a Latino minister called me out in such a nasty way. What had felt like a connection to my community became a, a sense of disconnection. On another level, though, that the shame at, the, at some point became coraje, you know? Like, how dare he? I felt that interaction fueled my pursuit for a faith experience that was true to my own cultural identity. I was more determined than ever to create that pocket of community back at my college. See, we witnessed the oppression in this country when white supremacy is still very present all around us in the criminal justice system and immigration policies of this country, in education and politics, we see it everywhere. The dominant culture seeps into much of our day-to-day -day 
Now we begin to believe that our proximity to whiteness is an asset. However, I realized how dangerous it is to believe that in order to be good, we must assimilate, especially when it comes to the church. We believe that the church needs to be modernized, but what we end up doing is copying white evangelical churches. We begin to have stages like them, social media platforms like them. We only sing their songs, but in Spanish. We begin to look and be like them because we've only known of the story to be true, that to become better, we must be like them. It's like a wave that takes us, that if we, if we aren't aware, it will take us along. There's just so much richness in our own culture that we can continue to celebrate. Yes, there are harmful beliefs that create misogynistic patterns. There are theological platforms that continue the cycle of trauma. There are norms that need to be deconstructed because they do not align with the gospel Jesus gave us. And yet, there is richness in our culture that, that we, we should celebrate. Our collectivist culture in the context of the gospel has a power to give believers the true sense of community that God wants us to. And it would challenge the individualistic society we see in America. The generosity we see in our families reflects the generosity God wants us to have that challenges the avaricia we see in this capitalistic society. The joy we exude through movement and laughter can create communities that break the routine of the very isolating nature of this hustle mentality we have here. There is so much good in our culture that we must uplift in order to protect and cultivate the goodness of our God-given cultural identity. And I say this, I do feel um, a heaviness though because I know it's easier said than done. I know the harm that's been done in the name of the gospel, but in reality has only protected damaging cultural norms. I know the loneliness that comes with wanting to challenge elements of tradition and culture while also wanting to cultivate a healthier, more freeing cultural identity. It only gets more complicated when we talk about the church where we have a culture that respects eldership, respects hierarchy, especially the patriarchy. And, you know, and our, our leaders often don't listen because our culture backs them up. It is lonely to see what is while holding on to what could be. You know, and all you have is the flare of excitement in your stomach that comes with imagining a community where you are fully accepted and fully seen for every piece of who you are. A community where you feel safe and where you feel loved. I, I do think it's possible. I am hopeful. I know there are many of us that are in this in-between space. Your parents came to this country for a better life. In experiencing a better life, you encounter the possibility of a life where your wounds can be healed and you can give your children an even better life. A lot of that better life includes understanding and practicing the gospel in a way that does not harm, but that brings liberation. We are the generation in between. And I believe God has something good in mind for each of us. 
You may need time and space to heal and recalibrate your faith. You may need to slow things down to understand where you stand. You may feel fired up and desire to be the change you hope to see. You may already be having these kinds of conversations with your parents or leaders with or, or without luck. You know, wherever you are and wherever you feel pulled, I encourage you to know that there is a part of your cultural identity that will always follow you. And I hope as a generation, we don't just assimilate and store our cultural identity in a kitchen cabinet to bring out only on the holidays. I hope that our culture can be a part of our faith as we challenge what is untrue, discover its beauty, and use it as a tool for resistance against the ways of this world. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at The MS Faith and subscribe to this podcast. Your following and sharing helps spread this message of hope and compassion. Gracias y hasta luego.